Hello, everyone, and welcome to New Consciousness Review. I'm Miriam Knight, and our guest today is Dr. Louis M. Profeta. Uh, Lewis practices full-time emergency medicine at St. Vincent Hospital of Indianapolis, and he teaches emergency medicine at Indiana University. He's responsible for their mass casualty preparedness, and he's testified before Congress on this topic. He's a popular speaker and frequent guest on television and radio, including NPR, and he's received numerous honors and awards for his contributions to community health and volunteerism. Today, we're going to talk about his first book, The Patient in Room 9 Says He's God. This book has received very deserved critical acclaim for its profoundly human portrayal of an emergency physician with all his fallible and indeed heroic sides. I'm so delighted to welcome Louis Profeta. Hey, thank you very much. Wonderful to be here. Louis you mentioned that one nun where you practice referred to your book as the most spiritually irreverent thing she had ever read, though I'm sure this tickled you to bits. Why do you think she said that? Well, I mean, I mean, it's, it, it shows sort of the fallible side of medicine. Also, I think the fallible side of uh, myself and, and physicians in general. And, and certainly it doesn't pull any punches. It has its uh, shares, share of uh, obscenity at time. Um, and, you know, sort of uh, in-your-face type of um, spirituality to it. And I, I think that's what she was, was saying. I took it as nothing but a compliment, and she meant it as nothing but a compliment. <laughs> it's probably my favorite, uh, my favorite statement about the book, and I think it best uh, describes the book. It's uh-huh. not a touchy-feely book. But at times it is, I guess. Well, considering the number of times I had to grab for a tissue, yeah. Uh, but I also <laughs> laughed a lot. Super. So it's a very, a very well-rounded book from that respect. Thank you. Now, you're often invited to speak on emergency medicine and spirituality. How do you think that these subjects come together? Well, I think as I touched on the book, I think the, the emergency department is maybe the most spiritual um, Location maybe the most spiritual environment of medicine that there is. Maybe hospice might be might be along that lines, but um, it is the only environment in medicine, and maybe in the world, where literally every single aspect of society shows up at one place at one time. From the ultra rich to the ultra poor, from black to white to red to blue to yellow to to what have you. Every race, religion, creed, sexuality, orientation what have you, shows up at, at one point at one time, often, you know, in rooms next to each other. You may have the CEO of a Fortune 500 company next, you know, next door to an out-of-control uh, crack addict. So um, you you get to see the entire spectrum of, of human existence all in one place at one time. And it is it is remarkable and beautiful and, and sad and elating all at the same time. What made you go into emergency medicine? I know every Jewish mother does want her son to be a doctor, but not necessarily an ER doctor. Um, you know, I, I like being the first person to be in contact with the patient. I like the high, the high pace of it, the, the variety. It, it seemed like every time I did a rotation in medicine in medical school, I loved each, each rotation. And it was the only one that seemed to offer me the best of every single world. From everything from you know a surgical component to a critical care, from pediatric to OB to, to psychiatric, whatever, it all it all was right there, and uh, it was perfect for me. Hmm. 
I'm an adrenaline junkie too. I think all all ER docs are adrenaline junkies to some degree. So, <laughs> when you were a medical student, you got involved in something called the Kmart bombing. Tell us, tell us the story, and it gave you some interesting insights into the circle of life. You know, it, it's funny that you would bring that up. I, I happened to go, <laughs> have the opportunity to go to the uh, Indianapolis Pacer Laker game last night, and uh, with my son. And in the stands was the father of a little girl. And I had my son go up and introduce himself uh, to him. And that was really a neat experience for me to have my son walk up and, and introduce himself to, to Mr. Bauer um, and to sort of see Mr. Bauer's reaction. But when I, when I was in medical school, my wife and I um, decided to take a, a camping trip to Canada. And I, I like to say it was sort of a, this test trip to see if we were going to be compatible, if we could spend you know, 10 days, two weeks out in the wilderness together. Um, and we went shopping, and a, and a couple held the door for us, and they had two beautiful little girls. And as we were walking in, just looking around the store, I happened to pee, pee, uh, peer down the aisle and saw her looking at something, turned my head away briefly, and there was an explosion, and somebody had planted a bomb in a, in a pump toothpaste container. And it had literally sheared this poor girl's hand off and, and took out her eye, and it was just a you know horrible horrible situation and um my wife and i and an off-duty firefighter by the name of john moriarty ran to her aid and, and sort of stabilized the situation and uh you know it was a profoundly uh depressing um uh moment in my life uh, to see how you know sort of the dark side of humanity right there in front of me mm-hmm well you can't leave the story there keep going <laughs> well um so where do we go from here? So um, they they rushed her to the hospital. They uh, were not able to salvage her hand. And, um, you know, years later, it just so happened that the um, uh, one of the TV crews came up to me, stopped me in the, uh, in the hospital, and they wanted to, to talk to me, do an interview. And I thought it was going to be on influenza because we were in the middle of that H1N1 epidemic. And I said, yeah, let me just brush up on flu. And they said, no, it's about the Kmart bombing. And I said, what do you, what do you mean it's about the Kmart bombing? And they said, well, it's the 25th anniversary of the, of the explosion. And um, I, you know, they informed me that she actually – worked in her own hospital, that she was now a physical therapist. She was graduated. Um, I believe she was married at that time and was practicing literally two stories up from me. So I got to go upstairs and, and see her for the first time. And uh, it was the first time I'd seen her since she was five years old. And it was it was remarkable to see how this young girl went from such a, uh, a tragic event in her life to pe- becoming this incredibly poised and wonderful woman who had now uh, sort of committed her life to becoming a physical therapist, especially a, a pediatric physical therapist. And uh, it, was, uh, it was an incredible, um, wonderful closure to a very, um, you know, horrible event in my life. And uh, it, it was incredibly uplifting. And, and I sort of, and I touch about, touch upon that in the book about how the incredible cycle of life comes around and how, um, you know, something something so tragic years earlier can can come back to have such a wonderful spiritual sort of feedback loop on your life years later. It was incredible, incredible experience. And, and last night, just watching my son, my son, my child go up and introduce himself to the father of this little girl was remarkable in itself. 
It just keeps getting. Yeah. <laughs> and and just these connections just sh- show up in your life. Well, I think they show up in everybody's life. I just don't think that we uh, pay close enough attention to it. I think uh, we're so busy moving around the universe. Um, I once had an aunt that uh, a wonderful godmother, actually, she's in that book, Maria, in the chapter, Maria, Maria, who used to say, we are creatures of coincidence. And I think all we have to do is just open our eyes a little bit, and it's incredible how much spirituality surrounds us. We just have a tendency to, tendency to be uh, a little tunnel uh, blind at time, I guess. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Now, you refer to your Jewish background in the book uh, quite frequently. How does being Jewish affect uh, how you relate to the world? Um, well, it's taught me a profound understanding of guilt. <laughs> let's, let's say it's a, that's a hall, hallmark of our religion. <laughs> it's, it's like the 11th commandment, thou shalt have guilt. <laughs> so, um, but what I mean, it's, it shaped me. I mean, it, it was who I who I am. It, it's how I was raised. Um, you know, we like to say that uh, Judaism is the light upon the world, but I think you know what it what it means is that um, maybe it it allows you the opportunity to see uh, my Jewish faith allows me the opportunity to see the good in the world. Uh, pay attention to it a little bit. I'm not going to say that's unique to Judaism, but certainly it it helped uh, shape my upbringing and also you know growing up Jewish in a in sort of a tougher part of the city. Um, that really wasn 't a Jewish area of the city that was it was you know in the sixties late sixties early seventies it was a very sort of working class um, um, caucasian christian community and so it it got it it sort of made me more visible in some ways which ne- wasn 't necessarily the best way in that community uh, when I was a little kid um, but you know, it shaped who I was and, and the way I was able to, I think, appreciate the, the differences in everybody was as I got older. Do you think it gave you a deeper compassion for uh, minorities, underdogs, etc.? Um, I think it gave me a, a different, um, a better understanding. Um, you know, compassion. I think I, I have the same degree of compassion um, for for everybody, um, but it certainly gave me uh, a, a better understanding of certain, certainly um, the plights that, that certain groups may go through. But it also gave me a, an understanding that we're able to lift ourselves up out of whatever oppression we may think that we feel. And uh, when I look back at it, there's not a thing I would change about growing up in that part of town. Nothing. Mm-hmm. Okay, it, it it gave me the strength to be who I am, and and I would have been a completely different person had I grown up, maybe in in a, in the the Jewish community on the other side of town, in Indianapolis. I, I know I would be, and uh, I'm I'm happy about who I am at this stage of my life. Your book covers anecdotes from your from many years of practice. What? made you decide that you needed to put them together into a book? Well, I think, I think a lot of it, and probably the, the thing that was the overwhelming driving factor was, I think all emergency physicians bring their work home with them at times. Um, we become cranky, we become moody, the shift work tends to get to you. There's a lot of very horrible things that, that we become uh, privy to. And 
it floats around in our brains, and we and there's no way you can avoid bringing it home, and you're bringing it home to your children, and the things that you miss, you miss out on the weddings and the you know the bar mitzvahs and the social gatherings, and and, and it's not unique to to emergency medicine. It's it's part of the it's part of the um, the medicine lifestyle in general, and I wanted to have a way of telling my children who I am. This is who your father is, and this is why he's gone. And this this is the these are the things he sees and the things that are going around his brain. So I really wrote it for my children, um, and you know, self published it initially. Then it sold an awful lot of books. I didn't realize how well it was selling till I started getting contacted by people and. Um, and then my wonderful agent found me a publisher, and uh, the rest is history. It's just sort of been percolating through the world. And, uh, um, you know, the best part is being able to just sort of see its work, its magic through the, through the country. It's awesome. <laughs> <laughs> you know, people like you, they stumble upon it a couple of years later, and they want to hear about it. And I, I just think it's great. You have so many delicious stories. Let's let's uh, <laughs> dip into a few. Tell us about the story of the cockroach in the ear. It shows off your rather wicked sense of humor. Um, you know, and, that, and that, I'll tell you something. That's not that's not unique, <laughs> unique to that 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 story. But um, you know, I had a young had a lady that came in in the emergency department uh, some years back. It was early in my career, and she said she had a cockroach in her ear. And and I'll tell you, this happens uh, not infrequently. We you know people fall asleep, and those nasty little vermin will find their way into your ears if your house is as set up as such. And um, she insisted it was a cockroach in her ear, and it very well could have been. I took a look in there; there wasn't a cockroach, and it's not like they're it could hide anywhere. It's not like there's furniture in there for it to hide under. So I reassured her and she kept insisting there was a cockroach in her ear. And I looked and I looked and I looked at her hair and I said, ma'am, I said, there's nothing there. It must have climbed out. And she then started berating me saying that uh, I didn't know what I was talking about and where did I get my medical degree and I must be a complete idiot and on and on. And I finally said, let me take a look one more time. I looked in her other ear. And she says, why are you looking there? It's on the other side. I said, ma'am, I just want to make sure it didn't crawl through. (laughs) She didn't think it was too funny. I think she wrote a letter of complaint, but I didn't care. (laughs) There are are some times you just have to, you just have to um, go with it. You know, there's some, there's some letters of complaint that are, that are worth it. And I think that, um, and that's one of the toughest parts of emergency medicine, especially in this sort of, um, service-minded or entitled-minded world that we live in, um, that sometimes we think we have to coddle every little, every little um, whim and picadillo of, of somebody. And the emergency department's tough. I mean, you realize that everybody coming there is sick or they're hurt or they don't feel well or they're afraid of something. And you have to try to comfort them. And sometimes you just can't do it. Nothing that you say, nothing that you do will make it any better. And we're human beings, too. And we, we can sometimes lash out. We do our best. But, you know, there's only sometimes only so much abuse you can take as a physician or as a nurse or as a registrar or what have you. And, you know, sometimes we lose our patients, too. <laughs> Now, you've seen so many kids and parents come through the ER that you used to carry a card in your wallet for parents in denial. Tell us yeah. <laughs> well, you know, um, we see 
we have a very affluent um, part of our city, uh, the north side of the city, and I, I always joke there's one school district um, just north of us where 90% of the kids are in the top 10% of their class. I mean, every parent that you come in, my kid's a top 10%. I know it's top 10% of the class. My kid never, I know he never does anything wrong. Never's gotten in trouble. Oh, yeah, I know he's completely fine. And, um, you know, I would pull that card out. The kid would come, the child would come in, they would be intoxicated or they'd be strung out on, on drugs or, or what have you, be brought in by the police under arrest and just sort of got tired of hearing it. And I'd just <laughs> pull out the card and show it to them and it'd have all the things that they just got done telling me. And it, it was also sort of a way of telling the parent, hey, listen, you're not in the same boat. All these kids are the same way. My kid's the same way. It doesn't mean that you're a bad parent. And I think that we, we tend to internalize that as parents. Our kids do something wrong. Um, we must be bad parents. And it's just not true. I mean, we, we tend to forget that we were adult, we were children at one time also, or we were teenagers. And let's face it, what was our job, uh, what was our job supposed to be when we were teenagers? We were supposed to lie to our parents. That was our job. That's what we're supposed to do as teenagers. And teenagers do it the same today. You just have to, you know, sort of help them um, understand those, where the barriers are, where the boundaries are. And uh, I think, uh, you know, I think that's what happens. We tend to internalize our, our children's faults a little too much. And yet you have some really profound opinions about the essence of good parenting. Share them with us. <laughs> yes. You're asking me. I'm, not, I'm still not even sure I'm a good parent. Um, they're good kids, uh, but they do stupid things, too, just like any other, other uh, uh, parent's kids. Um, I, I think we overmanage them. I think we need to let them move their way through life a little bit better. Uh, I say that a little, it's a little different, I guess, maybe having teenage sons, which I have. Uh, and I'm not sure I'd be the same parent to a daughter. I know I wouldn't. My kid, my girl would never uh, date if that were the case. <laughs> but um, I, I think that we hover over them a, a little too much. And it's funny, I, I always see when, I, when my kids were younger and friends would have their kids over and they'd fall down and the parents would go running over to them, huddling over them and uh, or hunched over them going, hey, are you okay? Is everything all right? And the child would look up and then just start crying uh, hysterically. We never did that to our kids. And they were supposed to, if they fell down, they had to jump up and throw their hands in the air and yell, ta-da! <laughs> and <laughs> and uh, they never cried. You know, we let them sort out their own um, their own issues. We put boxing gloves on them and headgear and told them to go out in the backyard and, and solve their own problems. And they'd come in, they'd be fine. And they're all best friends. Um, you know, you're there to sort of you're there to sort of run interference. You know, be sort of the referee on a on a on a zone defense. Uh, but but children are pretty resilient. You give them sort of the basic tools and let them uh, find their way through life. I think they do okay. You got to give them the tools. But you also say that the kind of bottom line is that you really have to love them. Absolutely, unconditionally. Whether they do anything wrong or right or, or what have you. I mean, love is 99% of the battle. And we just have to know how to love. And um, you don't have to always act to love. You just have to love and be a, be a shoulder, be an, be an ear, and, and let them know it every single day that they are the center of your universe. And um, oftentimes we don't. I mean, if you have children, they have to be the center of your life. Yeah. But that said, you still have to teach them limits. 
Absolutely. It doesn't mean you cater to them. Uh, you know, no is the greatest, you know, word a parent can uh, give to a child. You know, and it, it's incredible how many, how many parents don't say the word no. No, no, it's very liberating. I, in fact, I think it's the most liberating word in the English language. Just try it. It just rolls off your tongue. No, no, no. It's wonderful. Oftentimes I say no before they even ask the question. <laughs> they walk in, they go, Dad, no. <laughs> you haven't even heard me. I don't have to hear you. The answer is no. Do you feel like you have to ask me? The answer is no. Just from the look on your face, I know it's going to be no. Exactly. So um, over the years, you've had some um, kind of shifts in your view, in your worldview. Um, would you ha say that you've had any um, paranormal experiences or, or uh, you know, pr profoundly kind of paradigm-shifting experiences? Oh, where do I start? Is there one in particular that you read in the book that um – well, the title, the patient in room God says he's God. <laughs> room nine says he's God. Room nine says he's God. Um, yeah, you know, they, they keep happening, too. Um, I, have a, a, I have a friend, Bobby, that once said that I have um, some of the strangest karma of anybody who's ever met. And I think that's the best description, but I, but I don't think it's unique to me. I just think that I, I, I pay attention sometimes a little more. Um, there, there's been a sort of a ton of events. If I, if I could share something that happened not too long ago, uh, I think it's sort of interesting. There's a, um, there's a Jewish prayer called the Sheheki Anu um, that's essentially this prayer that says, hey, God, thank you for the rainbow. Hey, hey, God, thank you for the tree. It's when you see something neat in nature, you're supposed to sort of uh, reflect on it, I should say. And I go, used to go to Key West all the time with a buddy of mine. We'd go down and go fishing in the Keys. And on the way down, he, he is, um, he's very, he's, he's Christian and, you know, I almost say very religious, very practicing. Um, it's not evangelical, but, you know, he's very Christian. I'm very Jewish. We're college roommates, and we, which creates sort of an interesting drive down that, that three-and-a-half-hour drive from Miami down to, to Key West. And one day we were talking about the Shehekianu prayer. And we get done with a day of fishing. I don't know if you've ever been to Key West, but it's sort of like uh, any other sunset pier. It's, it's fascinating. The sun's setting, and you have all this whole crowd and throng of people that are hanging out on the pier, and they're watching the sunset. And I think it is a magical place. It's literally one of the few places in America where everybody just stops. They get real quiet. They sit on the pier, and they look at, of all things, a sunset. They're not looking at their cell phones. They're looking at, at the majesty of nature, of the sun setting over the horizon, and I think it's wonderful. So it was incredibly crowded that day with people, and a couple came up, and they tapped me on the shoulder, and they asked if they wouldn't mind if they squeezed in front of us and sat down in front of us, and it was sort of a precarious place for them to sit. And I said, yeah, go ahead. And they said, well, we don't want to block the sunset. And I said, well, no, we've been here many, many times. Don't worry about it. Go ahead and, and have a seat. You're not blocking our view. So... Phil and I are on our second or third mojitos, and we're smoking Hemingway cigars, and we got our baseball caps pulled down over our head and our sunglasses, and, and the sun's setting, and Phil makes a comment to me. He goes, hey, is this one of those Shehekianu moments? And I said, yeah, let me get the, uh, my iPhone out and take a picture of it and capture it. So I start to take a picture of the sunset, and for whatever reason, I turn the camera, 
to this young couple sitting to the right of me, and I snapped a photo of them. And, I'll, and remind me, I'll email you a, a copy of the photo. So I snapped a photo of this young couple, and I'm allowed to use their name, I asked, Eddie and, and Louise Mann from uh, uh, Detroit, Michigan. So the photo, I, I'm a horrible photographer, but the photo was really good. It caught them just before they were getting ready to kiss, and the, the, the sunlight was catching off to the side, and it was a, a small seagull and a sailboat in the background, and really probably the best picture I've ever taken in my entire life. And um, I show Phil the picture, and I get ready to delete it, and I go, man, this picture is just too good. I can't delete this photo. And so I tapped him on the shoulder you know, after the sunset, and people started getting up and walk away. And I said, listen, I know this is going to sound strange and, and sort of maybe voyeuristic, but I took this photo of you guys, and it's really good, and I don't want to get rid of it. And, and I convinced the, the, the wife to give me her phone number. I was going to text her the photo, and we got to talking. Uh, who are you? Where are you from? What are you guys doing here? And um, it turns out that the husband went to IU with me, went to Indiana University. Not only that, we lived pretty much in the same area. He was in the music school. I'm certain I passed him on many occasions walking past the music school because that's where all my science classes were. And so we were there at the exact same time. And it doesn't really stop there. The next day, I get a text message from the wife saying, hey, they can't see the, the, the camera uh, picture on their phone. Would I mind emailing it to her? And I said, sure, no problem. So I emailed the, the photo to him. A couple of days later, I get a, an email back. Essentially, it was, dear Dr. Profeta, words cannot express my gratitude for that photograph that you took of my husband and I at Key West. <clears throat> Eddie is dying of a brain tumor, a terminal glioblastoma. And we have been in Duke's Cancer Center for months. Um, we're not sure how much longer he will live. This is one of our few times to have finally gotten away. Our children are with uh, relatives of ours in Key Largo, and we thought we'd drive down and at least um, see the sunset. I can't express to you how important this photograph is for me. Wow. <clears throat> and I sat there. I could could barely read the words. And I emailed it, the copy, forwarded the message on to Phil. And I thought about that Shehekianu moment. Um, the Shehekianu moment wasn't the sunset. It was the couple sitting right there. And to this day, I have no idea why I turned that camera on this couple. And all the little things that had to have happened for that couple to have sat down there at that moment in time with Phil and I having that discussion, the camera in my hand, and turn and take that picture of him is, uh, I think, beyond magical. And um, um, so that's sort of my Shehekianu moment. Now, as a, as, a, as a footnote, Eddie is still alive. Amazing. He's, I think, six, year, six years out from his diagnosis. At that time, you know, they didn't think he was going to have six months, let alone six years. Um, and he's doing wonderfully. And hopefully he'll have a, a much longer life ahead of him. But it was a magical moment. So in terms of paradigm shifts, I guess I know that's sort of a long-winded um, answer. They just keep happening. And, I, again, I don't think that it's unique to me. I, I think that I've just been doing this job so long, 100,000 patients, that the, um, you start to recognize things. Things start to take on a sort of a, a hidden meaning and that, that maybe a, a lot of our lives need to be spent sort of um, keeping our eyes open a little beyond just the, the front of our vision. I think that's what it amounts to. Yeah. I think it was uh, 
Antoine de Saint-Exupéry, who said, uh, one can see rightly only with the heart. Absolutely, without a doubt. Yeah. Huh. Anyway, getting back to the patient <laughs> in room nine, tell us about him. Well, you know, it, it's interesting. That's the patient that I can't remember. I remember, um, I, I remember so many poignant patients in my life, and I can tell you what room they were in, what, what they looked like, uh, the way they were dressed when I saw them. It, it's incredible. If they have, if they leave an imprint, if the, especially if the case is unique or tragic or what have you, or even sometimes they, you know. Just the mundane. I can I can tell you everything about him in my in my brain, but I remember this nurse handing me a chart and essentially saying the patient room nine says he's God, and it was so nonchalant. It was just like, hey, the patient room nine has a sore throat, and and the reason being is that it's such commonplace for um, people with delusions or mental illness or schizophrenia or what have you to sort of make statements like that. But it was just the casualness in which she handed me the chart with those words rolling off uh, her tongue. And now I wonder, in looking back, um, who knows? Maybe that was God in that room. And maybe, you know, God's probably in every room to some degree since we're, we're made in his or her image, right? So, um, you know, that, that, was, that title stuck with me. That, that phrase t- stuck with me for years. And I know I went in and saw, saw that patient, but I can't for the life of me, remember anything about that patient. And it's, it's, I find that sort of interesting. I mean, nothing. I can't tell you if that person was black, white, if it was a man, a woman, nothing. I, I remember the room, but the patient is just a fog. And I, I think that's sort of interesting. That's rather appropriate, actually. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. So has your view of death <laughs> evolved over the years of your ER practice? Um, I think so. Um, I, I, I don't see it as being any less tragic, certainly. Um, I have a, a very, very dear friend of mine who is uh, um, dying of pancreatic cancer as we speak. In fact, I, I went to visit him at dead hospice today, and watching his transformation has been um, very sobering, to say the least. I I do think that as I've gone into medical practice over these years, I I do realize that um, we overtreat so much of this stuff, and I touch upon it that in that one chapter about honor thy mother and father that we do not let our loved ones go gently into that good night. We do way too much for them. There was a fascinating article that was published not too long ago, and I wish I could tell you where, where I read it, but it was something to the effect of how do doctors die and how they use, they, they go through much less in terms of diagnostic workups and therapies and surgeries and chemotherapy than, than the general population out there. Because, um, we recognize to some degree some of the futility, especially in the in the last parts of our lives. And I've been um, much more, I may be forthright in telling people, essentially saying, hey, stop. Don't do this. Don't do this to your loved one. Let them go. And I think, I, I think the reason being is I believe that there is a disconnect between uh, certain sort of Maybe certain generations. I, I call it and said that it was disconnect between the baby boomers and sort of the World War II generation. That there wasn't that sort of um, 
parent child type of relationship didn't seem hasn't seemed to be as strong in that generation as as it has before then and and it's actually i think coming around uh the pendulum swinging back maybe it's based on finances of this time or or what have you but there seemed to have been a disconnect that the baby boomers seem to want to do absolutely everything um that is futile for their elderly. Maybe they, they've somehow equated um, all this care and all this treatment with love, and it, and it just isn't. And it's, it's very interesting to me how once you talk frankly with these, with these family members in the emergency department, and I'm not afraid to say, hey, listen, if this is my mom or my dad or my grandmother, I would not be doing this. And you can see sort of this giant wave of relief that falls over their face when they when you tell them, hey, it's okay. It's okay just to hold their hand, love them, comfort them, cradle them, and help them along their, their path. And um, I think that's been sort of the biggest transformation in my life in terms of, uh, not, I'm not say embracing death, but, you know, in accepting that it is a natural part of the, the cycle of the world we live in, that we're all food for worms, so to speak. Mm-hmm. Well, so much of treatment is not really for the patient, but it's um, for the doctors to cover their backsides. It's for sure. Uh, a hospital economics, it's for the relatives to feel that they've done everything they could, and you know, as, as you just mentioned. And yet there was a very poignant chapter where you talk about um, the little baby who was brought into the wrong entrance of the hospital, and you came rushing over, and even though you knew the baby was dead, you kept on working on the baby. Tell us about that. Why? Why did you do that? Well, it, it was that was a, a horrible, a horrible case. Um, a, a young Hispanic couple or came running in through an alternative entrance. Um, it was in a completely opposite part of the hospital from where they should have come in, and this child was already dead. It was um, uh, a Sid's death, and so they brought in this lifeless body, and they were literally running the cardiac arrest on a on a desk in the lobby of the outpatient surgery waiting room, right in front of everybody. Um, there were so many people gathered around, and I got there. I'd responded to the code, because there's never a code called in that part of the hospital. And I thought at first, oh, it's just somebody that fainted. But as we got there, you could see that there was a um, there was a profound degree of despair going on when I got there. And there was this lifeless baby doing CPR. And there were so many healthcare workers around there and family members and people in the waiting room that you had to sort of send a message that, Hey, um, we, we still need to work this child. And yeah, I knew there was nothing we were going to be able to do, but in, in that situation, we were sort of treating the parents and treating the family and treating the, all the personnel and the staff that was there to show them, Hey, let's at least go through the motions. Now, you know, it wasn't like, we were doing anything incredibly heroic. It was really just sort of continuing CPR, getting an IV in the child, getting an airway in, um, you know, running the code, doing what we could do for maybe 20, 25 minutes, and then finally uh, pronouncing the child dead. And it was important. It was important for everybody there to see that um, that we weren't going to just give up on, on a baby. And uh, we did what we could could do, and uh, the child died. And it just so happened I speak Spanish, not very well, but well enough. And um, 
was able to communicate with this with this poor family uh, about the child, and the um, it turned out that the father happened to work at my favorite restaurant in the city. Uh, Carlos is his name, and we uh, became instant friends. And Carlos, um, uh, I showed up at the restaurant some months later, and Carlos saw me and broke down crying in the middle of the restaurant. Came over and gave me a big hug and made me a tuna sashimi appetizer. <laughs> and, uh, um, you know, he's done great. He's had had uh, other children, and uh, he's he's um, picked himself up and has um, moved past his tragedy. Doesn't love his baby any less, but you know, I my kids were small at that time, and so I, part of me saw myself and the degree of despair I might have felt had this uh, been my child, and uh, so it it sort of bothered me deeply, and it should have. Is that why you sort of anonymously? bought the casket for the child. Well, thanks for se- telling everybody. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah. Um, yeah, I, I wanted to do something. I, I just, I mean, I couldn't save him. Yeah. couldn't save the baby. Um, so I wanted to do something. So I thought, you know, I'll buy the casket. I'll buy the casket for the infant. Mm-hmm. So the hospital bought the uh, grave, I believe. So... That's the side of death. What has your ER stint taught you about life? Oh, that it's wonderful. As bad as it is, it's wonderful. I always say you can be dead for all eternity. You can only be alive one time. So, you know, if there's one thing that it's also taught me that the incredible resilience of the human spirit. I am, I am just amazed over and over and over. The things that people can overcome in their lives is just uh, beyond comprehension to me. And uh, I think that's one of the most ama- amazing things that I've learned in the emergency department, that, that we all have the strength to overcome the absolute worst events in our lives. We all have that, that strength. We just have to find it and surround our people, ourselves with people that help us uh, find that. Mm-hmm. And have you seen medicine changing and, uh, over these years? And what do you think are the changes for the better or perhaps <laughs> changes for the worse? Wow, I can't believe you want to go down that path. <laughs> you know, it, it's funny. Um, every doctor you talk to, when it comes to their children, if their children want to go into medicine, uh, they, you ask them, do, would, what would you do if your child came up and told you they want to be a doctor? Almost all of them say, no way, go into business, go into banking, go do something else, but don't become a doctor. But it's funny, once they decide to or they get accepted to medical school, there's not a doctor out there that is not proud of their child for doing it. So it, it's, I don't want to say hypocritical, but um, we all recognize the, the beauty of medicine at its core in what it has to offer. Certainly, sort of the government oversight and things like that have made it much, much harder for us to practice medicine. The legal, the legal climate, and you sort of touched on it, um, whether we want to believe it or not, so much of the, the cost waste in this country is just from unnecessary testing. And it's not the uh, economy of, of doing the testing. The vast majority of it is. We don't do it to make any more money. We do it because it's expected of us. This, you know, about 80% of the 
problems we see in the emergency department, if we did absolutely nothing, no testing whatsoever, no prescription, nothing, they would be completely fine in the next couple days and whatever was ailing them would go away. I kid you not. The vast majority of patients uh, will, would do just fine. But, you know, it's that few that wouldn't, and it, it compels us to just over-test and over-order. And, um, you know, friends uh, that I've known that have had wonderful, wonderful careers have one malpractice case, and um, it devastates them. Um, the emotional toll on them is beyond comprehension. And I think it, that kind of stuff affects us all. It has a, a trickle-down effect on all of us in the way that we, we practice medicine, whether we, we want to believe it or not. Um, just things like the electronic medical record that has been, that's been mandated, that everybody has to use the computers, a documentation, computer ordering. The vast majority of my time is spent in front of a computer screen now. For I'd say for every minute of patient contact time I have, I've got to spend 10 to 15 minutes in front of a computer. And that is the thing that bothers me, bothers I think all of us the most about medicine is that we have to spend so much of our time sitting in front of a computer screen as opposed to sitting in front of you. And I think that is the thing that bothers almost all physicians universally more than anything else. And, and I wish we could get back to a time where I could sit and, and talk to you as a patient. And that's the thing that all patients complain about. They say, well, my doctor doesn't spend any time with me. Well, you know what? Come and shadow me for a day, and I'll show you why I don't spend any time with you. Because I've got to run and sit in front of a computer screen for 15 minutes for every single patient I see. 15, 20 minutes is incredible. So, Do you see any alternative to that? Um, not right now, I don't. I mean, trash the whole system. The, you know, um, that's about it. Go back to paper charts, uh, lower our expectations as a, as a, as a people. You know, another th sort of interesting thing I've, I've seen transpire is I keep a, um, I keep a, a couple leather bound volumes in my office of thank you letters, thank you cards from patients over the years, uh, for, you know, for saving their lives, for doing X, Y, and Z. <clears throat> people don't write thank you letters anymore. It's incredible. And that, that is one of the most rewarding things for an emergency physician. All of our docs will tell you they go back and they look at these letters and it will have the worst days of their lives. And they'll go and they'll open up their, their little books and they'll flip through the thank you cards and um, the, it'll, it'll reaffirm to them the, the joy of medicine and why they went into it. And um, it's sad, but people don't do that anymore. They just don't. And I don't know if it's the fact that we, we email so easy, but then they don't even do that. Um, but it's still some of the, uh, the, the most special possessions I have in my entire life is on my, on my bookshelf. I have a, a little drawing written by this little boy. It's a, car, a color cartoon or little color stick figure. And it essentially says, Dear Dr. Profeta, thank you for allowing my daddy to spend Christmas with us. Um. The, probably the most... Um, special thing I have in my office other than picture of my, my family is that, that little piece of paper in crayon. And um, we don't do that. We don't write thank you letters. But I guarantee that all the docs will get complaint letters 
and mostly about billing or people will call will write and complain usually around the time they get their bill and they think it's a way of getting out getting away from you know paying their bills they they call and complain or write letters of complaint and you know we're we're human beings too our nurses are human beings and um this is a really tough job and uh just simple things like that it you know well, I think that comment about being grateful to people and showing people your gratitude is a comment that could be applied absolutely across the board in our lives. We just don't take the time to to thank people for the small things. Oh, absolutely. Absolutely. We We just expect too much. And I think another thing we do, and I sort of touched on this in, in the book also, is that we tend to internalize every time somebody does not treat us like we're we're gods, whether it's at Starbucks or the gas station or what have you, that that you know, we don't know what is going through somebody's heart at the time they hand you your cafe mocha lata venti, whatever they're giving you at that time. We you don't know if they've got a, a sibling that's suffering through ovarian cancer, or if they've gone bankrupt, or if their spouse has left them, or if there's a child with a drug addiction problem. And just because they don't smile or they don't fawn over you doesn't mean it's always about you. And instead of offering up that person a, a smile or a, you know, a big grin or to thank them or compliment them, you know, we tend to internalize their dismissive attitudes at time. And um, I think that as a society, we've gotten sort of a, a little selfish about that stuff. And um, if you look around, you'll notice that the people that s- tend to be the most happy in the world tend to be the ones that do approach life in that regards. And and just, you know, a smile here and there um, for the people that take care of you, that do the mundane things for you, a thank you, a compliment, and not sweating the little, st- uh, the little stuff, I think, goes a long way to make you happy in the long run. I think in the last chapter of your book, you made another really important observation. It was when you were on a camping trip and were looking at friends of yours taking videos instead of taking in the sites. Tell us about that. Well, you know, that, that chapter was, uh, was called, um, Can You See God Through a Video Lens? Or can't you can't see God through a video lens? And if you recall, just a little bit ago, I told you a story that I think you can see God through a video <laughs> lens. So there's a perfect example of a paradigm shift uh, in my life. But um, you know, especially in the tech in the the tech generation and the iPhone generation, how everybody has their heads buried into that little glass you know screen instead of looking around at the world around you. Um, you know, we saw an incredible thing in nature, and all a couple of my buddies wanted to do was, oh, I can't believe we didn't have a camera. And I said, you know, you have to see something like that. You can't just be engaged in something on a um, on through a camera lens because you lose so much of the sensation of everything around you, the smell, the sound, the you know, the dust kicking up from uh, your child sliding into into second base. You know, all the the, the gentle rustling, the gentle unease that occurs, or the uh, all the other magic that occurs around that photo. And I think one of the, the things that used to make my wife and I laugh the most was when our kids were little, we would go to these, you know, convocations with the kids in the, um, you know, the 
some you know school play or something like this and you'd see all these parents with their video cameras and their cameras all you know jostling for a uh, a position in front of the auditorium and honest honest to god it looks like a herd of water buffalo trying to get up to the watering hole i mean just jostling for positions we would sit and laugh we'd sit in the back and we just watch the whole thing unfold and um i think that they miss the real magic and they're not in the moment. And you have to be in the moment. You have to be connected with your spouse. You have to be holding their hand. You have to be looking at them, sharing smiles, sharing the whole moment, not just uh, staring through the video lens. So that was, um, I think, the point of that chapter. I remember Neil Donald Walsh once talking about intimacy, and he said that the real meaning of intimacy is into me, see, look to me. Yeah. Well, uh, I'm afraid that kind of brings us to the end of our time together. We've been speaking with Dr. Lewis M. Profeta about his book, The Patient in Room 9 Says He's God. Lewis, do you have a website for the book or? Oh, just Amazon. I'm a simple <laughs> kind of guy. Or your website, right? <laughs> right. Absolutely. <laughs> or whatever bookstore. You know, it, it's. Um, just go through the world, you know, go to Kindle, pay, you know, buy it used, (laughs) (laughs) pass it around. I always say it's a great bathroom book. Do you have a parting message for our listeners? Uh, enjoy every day. You only get, you know, you, you have all of eternity to be dead. You only have one chance to be alive. You know, don't waste your heartbeats being, uh, angry. Don't sweat the little stuff, okay? Uh, bad. You want to know what, what bad is? Come and spend a day with us in the emergency department. Everything else is just gravy. Enjoy it. <laughs> enjoy the ride through life. And I hope they will take the time to enjoy your book. Dr. Louis Profeta, thank you so much. Absolute pleasure to talk with you, Mary. Take care. And now we're going to close our show with our track of the week called Exactly by Amy Steinberg from her album, Must Be the Moon.
breeze it took to shake the leaves to make my mother's hair move, my father dare touch it and say, please, may I have a kiss? Yes, the breeze made me exist. And if you want to get even deeper into this right now, you will look at me and see a big old cloud. That's right, the, the cloud it took to form the storm to make the breeze to shake the leaves to inspire the lip lock. Yes, a raindrop will pop up out these words. You heard me right. If you look at me close enough, you will see a dark, stormy night. And what is night? Well, Exactly is Amy Steinberg's most downloaded song. It was recorded at a really special time in her life when her spiritual journey was just taking off and she was discovering herself as an artist. I'm pleased to say that Amy is one of the artists on luminaryvoices.com and her website is amysteinberg.net. Well, that's our show for today. For more great books and interviews, please visit our website, ncreview.com. And I hope you'll join us next week. So until then, I'm Miriam Knight for New Consciousness Review. Thank you for listening. Goodbye. Goodbye.